I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this edition, Autumn and I are going to catch up and talk about a very important week. And later in the podcast, we're going to introduce you to Dr. Lane Scales as she sits down with Jeremy Everett, who is the founder and executive director of the Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty. So you won't want to miss that interview. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Autumn. Yes. The inauguration of Joseph Biden took place yesterday, but more so the past president. We shall not speak his name. No. Got on Air Force One and left, and it is finally over after four years. Well, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I sat curled up um, in my bed with my daughter, who's 14 and is learning virtually, and we watched the historic um, moment of Kamala being the first female um, elected vice president, and it was a very exciting day. Well, let's start with that because, I mean, it was a very exciting day for not only women, but for the country. And a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, including myself, posted about it. My wife uh, posted a, a picture of herself uh, wearing pearls and a, a wonderful T-shirt and just celebrating the inauguration of the first female vice president. But, you know, more so, it's just a great day for our country that not only can the little girls see uh, a woman vice president, but little boys can see a woman vice president. Yeah. So as you were sitting there with your daughter yesterday watching this, just talk about what went through your mind, the conversation that took place between you two. Yeah, we talked a lot actually throughout. I uh, have recently finished Kamala's book, her autobiography, and um, Ava has started reading it. So we talked some about you know her her life path and how she's been sort of a pioneer her whole way through, not saying that she's perfect, you Mm -hmm. know, unlike our uh, Republican friends, we know that neither one of these people are holy, um, holier than any of the rest of us. (laughs) And I think it's important that we hold them accountable, but at the same time, acknowledging that this was a giant step forward for our country. Sure. You know, as I watched the coverage uh, all day yesterday and we got up early to, to watch uh, the former president leave the white house uh, and then certainly stayed tuned in for the inauguration. I was really surprised about the wave of emotion that hit me early on in the day. Um, you know, someone was talking about, especially those, I mean, there are those who are supportive of the president. There are those who certainly are in opposition to the president. Uh, I have made no qualms about it that I oppose a lot of his policies. Former president. Former president, that's right. But I did not realize the angst that was lifted yesterday when he left the Oval and left the White House. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to to measure that and, and be you know honest about that. It was about him as an individual and the things that he stood for personally, and the angst that he had brought to the entire country through his uh, bigoted language, through his racism, through his divisiveness, and it, of course, all culminated to uh, those horrible events that took place on January the 6th. But when he left, I didn't realize how much anxiety that I would be freed from when when he left. Mm -hmm. 
and mm-hmm. seeing the the inauguration of a new president, but also seeing just the, the pomp and circumstance, the tradition of the inauguration, I was really taken by the pomp and circumstance of the day, especially that moment after the inauguration when President Biden and Vice President Harris went to Arlington um, Cemetery and the former presidents, all excluding the past president, uh, and Jimmy Carter because he's 96 years old and can't get out like he used to, but former President Obama, former President Bush, former President Clinton, were all there to show solidarity at this moment. And it was very, very emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminded me that this still is a great country. Yes, we have our flaws. Yes, we have our differences. But in the end, when good people stand up, speak out, and step out, then good things can happen in this country. And that is when we are at the best, or at our best. And hopefully that's what we're going to see moving forward. Absolutely. I'm very hopeful about the future and you know, a, a stark juxtaposition between this inauguration and the last inauguration was the actual call for unity, the mm-hmm. actual call for I'm your president, whether you voted for me or not, take measure of my heart. I, I'm trying to do good for, for the whole country, even if you didn't support me. And that was a message, you know, as I sat in a cold hotel lobby four years ago during the inauguration, I never heard. And that message never came through because it wasn't there. And he did show us a measure of his heart. And, you know, I just am so thankful that it was four years and not eight. Absolutely. And uh, so, so at any rate, it was a very emotional day. And I've just got to take a brief moment to talk about one moment during the inauguration that just absolutely floored me. The entire day was a beautiful portrait of American democracy uh, and Americans coming together to inaugurate our next president. But how about that uh, poet, Amanda Gorman, reading her poem, The Hill We Climb? She You're a wordsmith. Classic. You're a wordsmith. Tell us about that. <laughs> it was the internal rhyming, and the, it wasn't just the words. It was how she read them. I mean, the poetry was just shooting out of her fingers like electricity, and she captivated a whole nation, the whole world. I mean, it was just a buzz with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, immediately after the inauguration, both of her books went to number one and number two on Amazon. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, I I used her words in my column. Uh, you know, uh, quoted her in my column uh, this Thursday, uh, talking about uh, the tale of two weeks and the triumph of democracy. And uh, her words just were so poignant, so powerful. Uh, and just uh, just reminds me that, you know, you look at uh, these emerging generations, and we're going to be okay uh, as a country because of people like Amanda Gorman. Yeah. Well, and, speak. You yeah. know, the younger generation is mouthy, too. I definitely have a seven-year-old who likes to talk politics in first grade, and uh, <laughs> I definitely had to remind him not to talk about sending the former president to jail before he left for school. <laughs> Yesterday, I'm like, buddy, it's okay to be excited. You can talk about the inauguration, but we're not going to talk about who needs to go to prison from the previous administration. Well, I, 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 I knew you put him in uh, karate lessons. Now I know why. <laughs> <laughs> Bless 
person living in this red state, his little <laughs> blue dot. What are we going to do? <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, well, speaking of good people doing good things, uh, we're really excited to announce uh, this week on Good Faith Weekly a new uh, correspondent, uh, someone who's going to be a contributor for us, uh, conducting some interviews over the future, Dr. Elaine Scales. Dr. Scales is a professor of social work at Baylor University, where she's been teaching for over 20 years. Uh, she's authored over 10 books and 40 articles uh, and just a, a delightful human being, and I hope that you enjoy getting to know her. She sat down this week with someone that I met a couple of well, Actually, I met uh, on my last trip before the pandemic in Washington, D.C. Jeremy Evert is the founder and executive director of Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty, and he and I were in D.C. in an event together and got to listen to him present on uh, world hunger and this guy is full of stats and information but also passionate about helping those who are desperately in need of hunger and um, a, a hand uh, that uh, lifts them from poverty and so uh, this interview is going to be really good and I hope you stay tuned for it so stay tuned for Dr. Lane Skills as she sets down with Jeremy Everett Lot Carey is proud to bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest pastors coast to coast. Our new podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, delivers wisdom from the Black church for the whole church. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or listen online at lotcary.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y dot org. We look forward to the pilgrimage with you. It's my pleasure to introduce Jeremy Everett, founder and executive director of the Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty. Prior to his work with the collaborative, Jeremy worked in international development in Christian contexts. Jeremy and his wife, Amy, are parents to three boys, and they worship at Dayspring Church here in Waco, where Amy serves as minister to children and families. Jeremy doesn't have much spare time because he's also earning his doctoral degree at Duke Divinity School. And Jeremy, I don't know if you remember, but we actually met uh, many years ago through Amy because Amy was um, my student a long time ago in graduate school in social work uh, here at Baylor. I, I do remember that. I, I do remember that. I remember you having us over to your house at one point uh, when she was one of your students. And oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love to do that. Yeah. And, yeah. And so, like many people who come here to study, uh, you and Amy have decided to um, plant yourselves in Waco and stay a while. Yes. we. Uh, um, it was described to me as, as, as Waco is kind of like the island on Lost, if you remember that show. Like you can oh, leave, yeah. You can leave, but it always sucks you back. And so, we... <laughs> When she graduated, we left for five years and lived in San Antonio, um, but uh, uh, but it quickly sucked us back, and we've been back for 12 years now. So uh, this is mainly the only community that our boys will really ever know growing up in, which is pretty mm. pretty neat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we love having you here, and and uh, and at Baylor, having you working with the collaborative. So I have watched this collaborative uh, grow from a small 
uh, a small seed, really. We share the building, your offices and our offices. Uh, I work in the Garland School of Social Work. And um, I guess because of COVID, we haven't seen each other much lately, but um, I really loved seeing how each year that goes by, the reach of the collaborative um, just grows uh, further and further. And now it's a, it's, a, it's a huge international operation that's helping Christians to address uh, hunger and poverty. Tell us a little bit about how, how it got started from the beginnings and, and, and what you're doing now. Yeah, uh, well, well, first of all, Lane, thanks for having me and, and for initiating this conversation. Always great to have a conversation with you and, uh, and to think back about how this project got started. Uh, mm -hmm. Pretty, uh, it, it feels like we've come a long way. 12 years ago seems more like 30 years ago, I think, but uh, I know I didn't have as much uh, gray and white hair in my beard um, uh, as I do now uh, when we kick this thing off. But uh, funny stories, I remember... So originally, when we started the project, this was a brainchild of, of Susie Painter when she was at the Christian Life Commission, mm. and then, of course, uh, Diana Garland, um, who at the time was the dean of the School of Social Work um, before it carried her name. And, uh, and so uh, Susie had reached out to me to see, she said, hey, we're really wanting to do uh, a, a project around hunger and poverty um, that is more systemic in nature. Um, the Christian Life Commission had been funding and engaged in uh, hunger-related relief for 50 years at the time that Susie and I um, were, were having conversations. But she said, oftentimes it's, it's for a specific project that's going to do some good in a, in a particular neighborhood, but we're not really connecting the dots. And so she, she, she created this vision of, of them kind of coming behind an organization that could help help bring people together to address hunger and poverty on a local, state, federal, and even a global scale. And, uh, and so uh, if you've ever sat down at the table with Susie Painter and, and, and Diana Garland, and they ask you to do something, you say yes. Oh, <laughs> you yes, absolutely. You don't tell them no. <laughs> Those are two uh, amazing women who are, who are incredible leaders. And, uh, and so I just felt fortunate to be at the table with the two of them. Um, and, and to be asked to, to lead such a such a, a neat project. Of course, none of us knew how it would grow at the time. Uh, it was just myself um, and a couple of grad students um, working on the project when we launched it 12 years ago. I literally had a little cubicle in the hallway of the School of Social Work, which was mm. in the parking lot uh, or the parking garage of, of, uh, on campus um, before it moved to its downtown home. And uh, we've come a long way. Now we think we have 40 or 50 full-time employees and another 60 researchers that work with us. So, uh, and offices around Texas and partners around, around the U.S. and, and uh, in Central America. So it's just hard to, hard to believe that so much has happened um, in the past 12 years. I think that's a credit to, to Diana and to Susie that they, you know, oftentimes some people just have the ability um, to see what the future holds mm. um, and, and to be able to see if, if we plant this seed um, right now in this particular time, in this particular place, uh, we think this seed can, can turn into something uh, really special and can literally produce like very literal fruit, you know, for, for people 
um, uh, around the world that are experiencing hunger. So I'm really grateful that they had the, um, the um, leadership and that John uh, Singletary, um, who is now the Dean of the School of Social Work, that he and I got to be on the implementation side of it from the beginning. So mm -hmm. that's a real gift. Wonderful. So when we think about hunger uh, in the U.S., how big of a problem is this really? I mean, uh, some people would say we are one of the uh, richest nations in the world. How is it that we still have hunger? Yeah, so I think of it like an equation. Um, so I was just uh, my mother-in-law, um, Jeannie Miley, who many people know in the uh, in the CBF world, uh, Jeannie um, sent me Obama's biography for my birthday this mm -hmm. fall. And so since I was in class all semester, I wasn't able to pick it up until uh, Thanksgiving break. And, and I've been uh, neck deep uh, reading reading that book since since then. And, and, and some of the ways that he's, he's kind of talking about some of his early challenges you know, and he said, you know, unemployment was a big one that um, because of the recession when, when he came into office. So unemployment was big. Uh, he talked about underemployment, which means people are in low wage jobs. He talked about uh, hunger uh, as an issue, of course, healthcare access and a number of things. He kind of painted these handful of categories of, of some of the challenges that he was having to deal with when he came into office because of the Great Recession. What I think people oftentimes don't realize is that it's normally the same individual or the same family, it's the same household on the local level that is experiencing the weight of all of our broken social systems. Mm. So uh, if, if you see widespread unemployment or underemployment, um, that family is probably going to be food insecure or they're going to be experiencing hunger in the U.S. Food insecurity is the way that we define hunger um, in the U.S. It just means that you don't make enough money or have enough money to be able to uh, provide adequately for your food needs. Mm -hmm. And so it's primarily an economic measure. So you oftentimes see the poverty rate in the U.S. and the food insecurity rate in the U.S. are normally pretty comparable. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's families that are bearing the weight of all these broken social systems that are experiencing hunger. Uh, food is just one thing that you can try to stretch to the next month. So that's uh, th that's part of it. On a global level, uh, so we've seen malnutrition. Uh, people are really people on the verge of uh, death due to starvation um, triple over the past couple of years. And it's tripled because first, because of war and migration issues that accompany war. Mm -hmm. And then the other is climate change. You know, climate has, has certainly um, uh, hit a lot of uh, farming communities uh, very hard, and then and then now the pandemic, and so what what you can look at when you when you can look at either globally or in the U.S. is that when hunger is present, it's not the cause of all of these issues oftentimes in and of itself, but it is the result of other things that are that are going awry. So, um, so in our nation, it's. Uh, uh, right now, unemployment and then underemployment that are major drivers of hunger. Mm -hmm. Good. Thank you for that. That good explanation. So we're talking big picture here. And uh, I know a lot of Christians want to get down to the uh, the local of what can I do? 
I remember uh, we were talking about seminary before uh, before we turned on the recorder. When I was in seminary in the 80s, one of the books that had, had come out and was popular at the time was called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And Rod Sider was the author. And that really opened my eyes to, um, you know, the policy issues that you're describing, but it also really gave a call to me to do something, to take action. How can you help us as Christians think about what actions we ought to be taking? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I'm grateful to Ron Snyder. He, he actually did an endorsement uh, for my book that came out last year, um, I Was Hungry book. And, uh, um, and that book was formational in my life as well. And uh, he, he really hit the nail on the head. I think that the first thing that Christians um, who are wanting to address hunger or poverty-related issues or structural racism, first thing Christians need is proximity. And if you don't have proximity to the problem, your solutions are almost always going to be wrong. And what needs to accompany proximity is you have to listen first. Um, so when we were working in, in San Antonio's West Side, we spent two years listening to the community, meeting with community members before we tried to launch any kind of a project, in part because we needed to build buy-in. We needed to cultivate trust. I think Stephen Covey says that leadership moves at the speed of trust. Well, how do you build trust? Well, you build trust by listening to other people, by, by, by genuinely believing their perspectives. And right now, we have a difficult time believing people's perspectives um, that are different than ours. And so if people are serious about racial reconciliation or they're serious about economic justice or food justice or addressing hunger in a comprehensive way, the first thing you have to have is proximity. Mm -hmm. and, and with proximity, you have to listen. Because typically what we found is that people in low-income communities know how to solve the problem that they're experiencing. And, uh, and oftentimes we want to make it about them, um, about them being, you know, uh, uh, that there might be a lack of morality present mm -hmm. in their lives, which is driving, you know, their, their poverty. And so we have a tendency to blame the poor for their plight in our nation and, and talk about, you know, individual responsibility. Well, that is the same argument that Pharaoh used when blaming the slaves, the Hebrew people, uh, and, and choosing to escalate matters with them. He said, they're complaining too much. They're lazy. So you forced them to harvest their own straw to make the mud bricks as they were making, you know, Pharaoh's temples and, and, and so forth. Well, so that, that language, that blaming the poor for their plight hadn't changed in, in thousands of years, the moral mm -hmm. story. And um, at least as Christians, we have to understand that Jesus stands with people who are the dispossessed. So if we are going to be people who, who, who are Christians and, and are committed to following Christ's life and work, then we too have to stand with the dispossessed. And, and part of what that means is we have to listen to them and let them tell us what the truth is. And, uh, and uh, we, have to we, have to, we have to choose that path if we want to try to uh, to fix some of our broken social systems or to repair them or to tear them down and build new ones mm -hmm. um, that, that are more just for sure. Yeah. You're preaching like a social worker now, proximity <laughs> and listening. I mean, those are such key 
uh, key steps that are often overlooked when we jump to act too fast. That's right. Um, so you brought up, uh, I was hungry and I did want to ask you about your book. Um, tell us about, uh, about what drove you to write a book and, uh, why we should read it. Yeah. Well, uh, well, thanks for asking about it. You know, it's, uh, um, you know, much of it is, is a story of my experiences in terms of proximity. So my wife, Amy and I lived, uh, for 20 years, two decades in low income communities. And, uh, um, our two oldest sons were born, well, all three sons were born in, in areas that were low income neighborhoods, but, uh, our two oldest in, in some extreme, extremely impoverished areas. And, and I think that, uh, you know, that was very formational in my experience. Um, uh, back before people were talking about getting woke or whatever, I remember sitting down with some community activists um, in the West side and them telling me, we just want you to know that you don't speak for us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and telling me, you know, we don't, there's no such thing as being a voice for the voiceless. We've all got voices. Um, we just hadn't had access to a microphone. So if you can get us access to the microphone, that'd be great. But uh, um, th- those were uh, some important lessons. And, and, you know, I think I felt very uh, um, fortunate to have some of those opportunities and, and experiences. And so I wanted to make sure that that offered them to other people. You know, I think some of these stories and experiences that we all have, certainly those of you who've been in social work for, you know, a lifetime, they don't belong to us. It's not our story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a reason that we've been set apart to be able to have those kinds of experiences and it's so that we can share it with the general public so that we as people of faith can hopefully move closer to Jesus, you know, in our, in our, in our relationship and do a better job of loving our neighbor as, as ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I think we, you know, some of us have been blessed with opportunities of, of maybe more in-depth proximity than others. And so, and I think that that is, um, that is a gift that we're meant to share. So a lot of that, uh, a lot of those stories, uh, I'm a storyteller, and a lot of those stories and experiences are, are riddled throughout the book. And another thing is just to say hunger is solvable. Mm. Uh, we actually produce enough food in our nation and around the world to ensure that everybody would have access to three healthy meals a day, seven days a week, no matter where they live. And so if, it's, if we're actually producing enough food, then what is the problem? Um, and, and really trying to do a better job of identifying the problem and then creating creative solutions or highlighting creative solutions to be able to comprehensively address it. And so I think if you take on a social problem, that you need to take it on with the intent to end it. And so all of your strategies, all of your organizing needs to be with the intent of ending that particular problem. Now, you may not, like Dr. King, you know, be able to, or, or Moses walk over into the promised land, you might see it from the mountaintop um, yourself, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't commit your life to that cause. Um, and then you have to commit yourself to a cause. You know, you can't take on 15 causes. Uh, I, I tell our team all the time, you could typically only drive one car. You know, you might be able to be a passenger on several others, but uh, if you're going to drive an issue, you got to pick one and, and, and really try to drive it. So, um, so a lot of the book is born from that experience. Um, and then I would just say the big difference in, in, in the, the world that Ron Sider writes about in the mid eighties to the world that we're writing about now is that, uh, 
where we're at now requires multi-sector collaboration. Mm. The church can't end hunger by itself. And the federal government can't end hunger by itself. And, and the nonprofit can't end hunger by itself. The only way that we can achieve great things as a nation, the only ways that we can achieve great things as a world, or certainly as people of faith, is if we work together. It is the only pathway forward for us to actually comprehensively address these big social issues, many of which that have been around for thousands of years. And if we think that we can volunteer our way out of hunger or philanthropically give our way out of hunger or structural racism, then we are kidding ourselves. Mm. Okay. Because the type of hunger and economic injustice, structural racism and so forth, all these issues that are inextricably intertwined have been around in, case, in some cases hundreds of years and other cases thousands of years. So it's gonna take our, our brightest thinkers and researchers and our best leaders working with our committed community uh, leaders and activists all working together to achieve the end of, of, uh, of justice, which I think is, is something that we strive for as people of faith. Whether we achieve it or not, you know, that, that's not up, we, we can't control that, but, uh, but we can control working hard to try to make it happen. Absolutely. That's right. The struggle continues. And then, and as you're reminding us, hunger is solvable. Uh, a lot of our social problems are solvable. It's making the uh, choices that we need to make and being intentional about how we go about it and recognizing uh, all of the connections between um, the problems and the disparities, the inequalities that drive uh, these these problems, uh, such as hunger and poverty. Yep, that's right. So uh, the collaborative is located within Baylor University. It's a place where people learn, where young people come along and um, are at a critical point, I think, for starting to think about these issues. As we have both said in our lives, it was uh, at that point that we began looking around for our callings. So being in a university, how, is, um, how does that contribute to what the collaborative is, is trying to do? Yeah, well, it, it gives us the, the flexibility of taking a 30,000-foot view. Uh, so we work with literally thousands of organizations that are direct service organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the last I saw we have... 25 or 30,000 organizations that our team works with. And those organizations, you know, you look right now, it's skyrocketing food insecurity in the U.S. And all of us have seen images of the cars just lined up for miles waiting to get food from a food bank. And uh, our colleagues who are at food banks or are doing direct direct service work, um, they don't have the luxury of taking a 30,000 foot view and assessing how they can improve the system. They are trying to feed all the people in the line today. Mm. And tomorrow they're going to get up and they're going to try to do it again. And so I think one of the benefits of being at a university collaborative and having 60 researchers and, and, and you know, 40 or 50 field staff who are, are working, organizing communities on a daily basis is that we are able to come up with innovative, scalable solutions in ways that others may not have the, the luxury to be able to try to find out, you know, try to find it. So uh, one example of that is uh, 
I served on a congressional commission for a couple of years in uh, 2014 through 2016. And one of the things that we identified was that uh, in our travels across the country was our, the interventions that were working to address hunger in urban areas were not translating well to rural areas. Mm. Just because, you know, children and families live too far away from uh, from a grocery store or from a nonprofit organization or from a school even um, to get a summer meal. So we partnered with USDA and then pulled in three corporations to create what we call Meals to You. And it's where we uh, started mailing children a box of food, a week's worth of food um, during the summer months. And we, we, had, we had 20 school districts um, in East and West Texas where we piloted this approach out in uh, um, 2019 before the pandemic. And we, in those 20 school districts, we had about 4,000 kids that were signed up to be a part of the demonstration project that we tested. And we served about half a million meals over a 10 week demonstration period. It worked great. And we just used the mail. I mean, we just were able, because we were able to have a 30,000 foot view, we were able to say what, what resources exist that we're not leveraging for the cause of the hungry. And so, you know, getting a, a food distributor to be able to box, sort and box food and mail it directly to the home of a child who's on the free and reduced lunch program who would not have otherwise have received a USDA funded meal during the summer. And for them to be able to open up a box and have 10 meals and five snacks every week, you know, uh, was tremendous. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was led by uh, Doug McDurham, who's, a, uh, as we were talking about, a social worker uh, who, who leads our strategy efforts um, and has just done an amazing job. Well, during the pandemic, USDA called us and said, is there any way that you can scale that program nationwide? And so we ended up scaling it to 44 states and territories, served about 300,000 children, um, wow. 40 million meals, uh, and, the, and boxes started being received on Easter weekend um, in 2020, and, and, and we continue to serve until school started this year in mid-August. And then now we're working with schools to try to run the program themselves. But uh, um, that to me is kind of a, uh, that, that couldn't happen if we were not, uh, you know, at Baylor. And so I'm, I'm glad that we are able to bring these resources and that, you, that the university is, is leaning into its Christian mission mm -hmm. by making this one of its priority areas. Absolutely. And there's no doubt that you have really raised our awareness uh, around Baylor to, um, uh, to research, to act. Uh, it's such an important issue for us to be addressing. So, Jeremy, we always close our uh, interviews at Good Faith Media with the same question, which is the tagline uh, of Good Faith Media, and it's this. Um, there is more to tell. So what is your more to tell? Well, I'll, I'll go back to, uh, since my, my book was titled For I Was Hungry, uh, the Matthew 25 text, uh, I, I'll go back to that. So Jesus in Matthew 25 says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, a stranger and you welcomed me, naked and you gave me clothing, sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. This is the only apocalyptic or end of the world scene in the entire gospel of Matthew. And Jesus has returned as the king and he's sitting on the throne and he's gathered all the people and he begins to separate them. 
the sheep and the goats, the righteous from the accused. And to the astonishment of the people gathered, the criterion for judgment wasn't confession of faith in Christ. Uh, it, it, it wasn't uh, um, uh, what our belief system was. Nothing was said of grace or justification or the forgiveness of sins. Instead, what matters was whether or not a person had acted with love and cared for the needy. Those acts not only were extra credit, but they constituted the decisive criterion for judgment. And so I think when we think about whether or not this issue is ours to address, I think we can go no further than Matthew 25, and I think the resounding answer is yes. And if we want to blame the poor for their plight, um, then, uh, then woe to us when we are sitting uh, with Jesus among all the people on that final day. But if we do, uh, if we do what we're able to do within our circumstances, whether that is create a food pantry to serve people today, join a research effort that can help feed millions of people in the future, um, or go help address the pan, you know, people experiencing starvation and during the pandemic, whatever our calling is, is that we, we need to faithfully follow that calling. Mm-hmm. But whether or not we choose to address hunger and poverty um, is, is literally a matter um, of our faith perspectives. And so if we want to do good faith, um, it requires that we, we feed the hungry for sure. Absolutely. Well, that's an excellent word for us to leave with. And we appreciate um, your being with us today. And we'll be sure to put in our show notes uh, information about the collaborative and how people can, uh, can contact you and get involved. Perfect. Dr. Skills, thank you so much for that interview with Jeremy Everett. And Jeremy, thank you so much for all the good work that you're doing around the world. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Good Faith Weekly this week. Join us next week and tune in again. Until that time, remember, keep living good faith.